Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. I am your host, Al D, and the author of MBA Insider. This podcast is for career-driven professionals looking for advice on how to grow their careers by leveraging the skills, experiences, and knowledge gained from an MBA degree. In each episode, I'll give you a look into the business school experience, along with practical tips, career advice, and real-life stories to help professionals grow their careers. Welcome, everyone. Uh, my name is Al D. I am the host of the MBA Insider Podcast, and I'm excited today because I have Laura Huang, an associate professor at Harvard Business School, uh, with me today. Um, Laura, in addition to being a professor at HBS, uh, is also uh, an author of Edge, Turning Adversity into Your Advantage, um, her first book. Um, so congratulations, Laura. And uh, her uh, work has also in research has also been featured in the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Forbes, and Nature, and many other publications. And Laura, uh, thank you so much for being here and for joining me. Um, it's a it's a pleasure to have you. Thanks. It's a pleasure. Great. So I guess maybe just to start, and I always love to just give a warm up just to uh, uh, show our listeners just a little bit about who you are. Um, I read or listened somewhere where you said you were a huge New York Yankees baseball baseball <laughs> fan. So. I- I know I'm already, I, I think just by saying that I've already, you know, half your audience is like, ooh, hiss, okay. yes, but I grew up a huge Yankees fan, huge okay. New York Knicks fan, All right. um, so I am sorry to say to some of your listeners that that is true. <laughs> okay, so you, I know you're a huge Yankees fan, so tell me, uh, give me some of your favorite uh, play, uh, baseball players of all time on the Oh, nice. Um Okay, well, there's obviously the normal, you know, the, the normal cast of characters where I have to say, you know, Jeter, Mariano, um, but, uh, and Paul, Paul O'Neill, yeah, I love. Yeah. Um, I have a soft spot for Andy Pettit. Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you remember Chuck Knobloch. Of course I do. Um, swing, yes. Yeah, with yeah. a very unique swing. Um, I was a huge Girardi fan when he was a player before. Yeah. <laughs> before yeah. he you know took on more of the more of the formal role but um so i love girardi when he was the catcher mm-hmm. um jorge posada i mean i just i loved all of them they were so like i was just so into it and um but but i'd have to say if i had to pick just one or two it would probably okay give me three it'd probably okay. be andy pettit yeah um probably andy pettit paul o'neill um Mariano yeah and then I'd have to sneak Jeter in there because you know who doesn't love Jeter I mean come on even even Boston Red Sox fans love Jeter so yeah yeah you're like you're pausing there you're like not really but I mean having lived in Boston and um knowing the um love but also irrationality of many Boston sports oh then Johnny Damon I mean okay there you go yeah there there we go no I'm just I'm just thinking back so I as we talked about I lived in Boston and uh, I lived right near Fenway Park so I have been uh, to many uh, Red Sox Yankees games before and so I'm picturing in your head what you're saying about them loving Jeter and also picturing having gone to those games and wondering I mean, I think now we yeah. can probably okay, maybe say that. Okay, maybe respect. Okay, there's, sure. there's yes. a level of respect 
for Mariano. And yes, that, that is, I, yes, absolutely. For Jeter. Yes. But, you know, it is painful because I now live in Boston. Yes. And so I can totally feel like I remember when we were making the move to Boston or thinking about it, I was like, can I really do this? Yeah, is like, this allowed? Can I? There is something, there's something very ingrained in you when, when you're trying to make this like life decision about a career move that is a really great career move that's taking you to Boston, but what's holding you back is the fact that you are a Yankees fan. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, I can empathize slightly. My, um, my father is a graduate of uh, the Duke uh, Fuqua MBA program, and uh, I, got, I went to UNC and got my MBA. Oh my gosh. And I, of course, I'm a Duke grad. So you can you tell go. like all of my sports teams, I have very strong, I don't oh, know. Oh, I know. I can imagine. I've developed very like polarizing tastes when it comes to, to sports, because I actually, I mean, like, I don't know if I even want to say this on air, but like I was a huge Christian Leitner fan. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. And, I... um, and then of course, having gone to Duke where, yeah, I yeah. remember, you know, my mom was appalled that I was sleeping in a tent of course. for, you, you know, the Duke UNC tickets. And she's yes. like, I am not, I am not yes. allowing my daughter to sleep in a tent when the tuition is who knows how much and room and sure. board and all of this, this sort of things that, um, and, and you're choosing to sleep in a tent for two weeks to get basketball tickets. Um, but, but, you know, I, uh, you know, the, the, the Duke basketball team is also near and dear Agreed. to my heart. No, for sure. The upside of it though, is that you have a lot of championships. So, you know, you win, <laughs> you win some and you lose some. In this I'm case, also a won. huge Knicks fan though. So, okay. well, so know, then that just to, evens everything out. Yeah, it evens out. I've gone through, I've gone through years of pain with, sure. with the New York Knicks. So um, I think, I think, I think we can call it a wash. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, well, we could do a whole podcast on sport, New York sports teams, but we'll we'll stick to uh, NBA Insider today. So, I guess yeah. just to start, um, what is what is Edge, or what is an Edge? Um, you know, what you know, why did you write about it, or what was the inspiration uh, behind writing writing about it? Yeah, I mean, so I had been doing research for a long time, like more than ten years, around inequality and disadvantage and disparities and stereotypes. And was presenting a lot of this work and finding, you know, all sorts of things that we would expect, right? That based on perceptions that others have about us or stereotypes that we're less likely to get hired, get promotions, get raises, get funding for our ventures. And I kept getting asked this question, you know, what can we do about this? Are there ways that we can level the playing field? And so the last couple of years of my research really went into this book, which is about how do you gain an edge, um, especially when there are these constraints and stereotypes and perceptions that are placed upon us. And so this book is really about how hard work alone is not enough. I mean, we tend to think that hard work and grit, we have such a love affair now with hard work and grit and these sort of things, but hard work alone is not enough because so much of success and outcomes is determined by perceptions and stereotypes. And so it's about how to manage perceptions and stereotypes to gain an edge. So the book is entitled Edge, Turning Adversity into Advantage, but edge and even though it's entitled EDGE and it's about how to gain an edge, EDGE actually stands for the framework that I've developed over the course of my research, where the E-D-G-E stands for the components of this framework. And I can go into it quickly here for you, but basically the E stands for enrich. 
And it's about how you enrich and provide value in any sort of circumstance or any sort of context. The problem is that we often don't have the opportunity to show others how we enrich or provide value because of these perceptions and stereotypes or because we don't belong to the right networks or the right groups or we don't look the right way or act the right way. The D stands for delight. And when you're able to delight your counterpart, it's the equivalent of cracking that door open just a little bit. So you have the opportunity to show how you enrich and delight and enrich and provide value. Um, the G stands for guide, which is that even when you know how you enrich and delight, you have to be able to guide people to those perceptions of basically to who you authentically are. You need to guide people. You need to flip those stereotypes in your favor. And so guiding people is such a critical piece of, of, of guiding others' perceptions. And that gets us to the final E, which is, stands for effort and hard work, which we often think that effort and hard work comes first. That if you put in that hard work, it'll speak for itself. But in fact, the effort and hard work comes last in this framework because when you know how you enrich, delight, and guide, that's when your effort and hard work actually work much harder for you. And so that's when you start to get those tailwinds. So the book is really about how we can empower ourselves to flip stereotypes in our favor so that we can create our own edge. Thank you for, for that and for walking through the edge framework uh, really quickly. I think it was a really good way to illustrate that in action. So I want to grasp onto one of the things you mentioned a couple times, um, that, the last part, the, the hard work piece, because I, I mean, you wouldn't be here without hard work, obviously, and I wouldn't be here without hard work. And so obviously, we're not saying hard work isn't important. But could you talk a little bit more maybe about, you know, the nuance? And I guess where I'm going yeah. with this is that, um, you know, my audience a lot of times is, is MBA students, many of whom are going to top MBA programs where uh, yeah, like you gotta, you can't sleepwalk, right? Like you have to like right. work hard, but to your point, um, just because, you know, there are plenty of people who do work hard, who don't get into business school who, or who, who don't get that opportunity. And so it doesn't you know, necessarily gain, you know, guarantee anything. So could you, could you explain a little bit more just like maybe in, in the nuance of, of hard work in that context? Absolutely. Hard work is critical. I mean, I would never say that hard work is not critical, the, but it's that hard work alone is not enough that hard work doesn't always speak for itself, right? We've all had situations where we've put in the hard work or you take two different people who work equally as hard and one person will inevitably get the outcomes or the success or the promotion or whatever it might be, even though two people have worked equally as hard. And it's because so much of the success and outcomes are driven by perceptions and signals and cues and these implicit sort of things. And so just as these sort of stereotypes and perceptions are the poison, so too are they the antidote, where we can take these perceptions and stereotypes and really navigate them so that they work in our favor. And that's when this combination of hard work plus being able to guide and redirect and delight really add up to giving us the, the ability to do big things and achieve that sort of success. So the first part of it is like coming to terms and recognizing that, you know, we know, we know that there is this myth of meritocracy, right? We know that there is, in, that there is this imperfect system 
But even as we strive to deal with this imperfect system, like a lot of times we talk about system level solutions to disadvantage and inequality, things like, well, let's have more equitable hiring practices, or let's use algorithms to help us with hiring, or let's try and bring on more, have a more diverse and inclusive workplace where we have upper level management or high, you know, top management teams that are, are more diverse. But the thing is, as individuals within organizations, that actually leaves a lot of people frustrated because we can't just sit around waiting for the organization to get more diverse or the organization to be more equitable in terms of hiring and promotion. So instead, what I talk about is how from the inside out as individuals, we can really empower ourselves to create our own advantages and our own edge, even within this imperfect system. The second piece of this is like particularly relevant, I think, to MBA students and a lot of the students that I've had or students that have, are trying to, um, to kind of go this, go the route of, you know, in the business ecosystem or in the business world where, you know, you, a lot of the people who, you are very successful, right? You, you have gained a certain level of success based on that hard work, even though some of that hard work didn't pay off and you may have a chip on your shoulder for some things or you may have been wronged in other situations. And so I talk a lot in the book about how, you know, we all have these situations where we've been, um, where we've been wrong. Like even with my own students, I, I do this exercise where I have them all try and think of a situation where they've been wronged by someone else. And within 10 seconds, people can think of at least one that still is like an open wound. Like sometimes it's like 10 years ago and they're still like just thinking about it gets them angry and all like, you know, all animated all over again just by that situation, because we've all had that, and it leaves us bitter and jaded and frustrated. And so I talk about like asking yourself the question, how does this make me better, not bitter? That it's still gonna be painful, but how can we, instead of having it be an open wound, have scar tissue that protects us and allows us to like be better. And so it's, it's that piece of it as well, like recognizing that there is unfairness and there is failure and there are gonna be drawdowns. Um, and then the final piece of it is something that I talk a lot with my students about. And we, we, we hear a lot about like the imposter syndrome where people feel like, they're imposters, right? And they get into an MBA program and they're like, oh my gosh, everyone else is so much smarter than me. I'm like that fluke. How did I get in? But there's also something called the overachievers paradox that we don't talk a lot about that often goes hand in hand with the, with this imposter syndrome and the overachievers paradox. Really, if you think about like, you know, a bell curve or, you know, a, 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 um, you know, an equally distributed sort of curve, um, what happens with the overachievers paradox is that individuals, especially when they are overachievers or they have accomplished a lot, regardless of their hard work or in spite of their hard work or because of their hard work, that they flip flop between these two dimensions. So you can imagine like a scale of one to 10 and they flip flop between the one and the 10 constantly. Like, um, and let me try and explain this like through examples. So, you know, it'll be something like, oh, I got called on today by my professor and I gave this outstanding answer. And then you link it to something like, oh, 
Like, I am definitely going to get that private equity internship that everybody's been wanting. Um, or like, you know, yeah, that like I did, I, I, I gave a great response in class today. So like, I'm definitely going to be a huge success and a great leader. But then like equally, like that same person, it could be like, I didn't get called on at all in class today or that response that I gave wasn't as good. And now it's all of a sudden like, I'm a failure. I'm never going to get that internship. Everyone here is so much better than I am. And like overachievers tend to toggle very quickly between the world is amazing and everything is a huge success. And this is a disaster and I'm never going to make anything of myself. Right. And, and so that along with the imposter syndrome is like a dangerous cocktail. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. this is something that we need to think about when we are trying to gain that advantage or discover or create our own unique edge. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot you said there that I, I loved. And I, I loved how you paired both the imposter syndrome with the overachievers mindset, because I, I, I feel like you're calling me out right on the, right on the air. But no, I, I think it's something I talk with MBA students a lot about. And I'm always reminded by the phrase, uh, nothing is ever as good as or as bad as it seems, right? In any given moment. Totally. Um, because cause you're, cause you're right. Um, you know, at the end of the day, like when you, when, when you, don't, um, when you don't have the best answer or your professor doesn't call on you, the world's not over. Uh, it just wasn't your best day. And, you, you, and there's another one and you, and, and you got to move on you know, from it. Uh, but I also think that when you're in an environment like that, it's, it's very easy to look up and see, oh, well, Johnny or Sally had a good day and I didn't. So therefore, like, I'm, you know, I'm awful or like Johnny and Sally got, you know, is, is got the internships and I didn't. So therefore, you know, yeah. to equate like those false uh, those false narratives. Um, and that's because it's such, we're in such a socially embedded environment yes. when we're yeah. in an MBA program. And I talk a lot about that because, you know, what happens is that you put all of these super bright, super capable people in a room together or in a cohort together. And there's naturally going to be these comparisons. Yeah. And because you're so capable, you, everything looks like yes. there's a door that's open. Right. And so even though you're interested in a certain direction or a certain industry or a certain career, you can also place yourself in the shoes of lots of other people and be like, oh, wow, look what they've accomplished in finance or look what they've accomplished in sales and marketing or look what they've accomplished as the chief of staff at this, this company. And you can sort of envision yourself mm -hmm. with enough work, hard work in any one of those those situations yeah. and everything kind of looks glamorous. Yeah. And so what I tell my students and the advice I give is you have to go for directionality. Yeah. And what I mean by that is it's totally okay to be considering multiple things at the same time, because that's what happens when you're in an MBA program, you're naturally going to be, your eyes are going to be open to a lot of different opportunities. And so it's fine to do that as long as you go in a direction, yeah. like go in that direction and allow yourself any, any sort of opportunities in that gamut of directionality. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. when you start going in 360 di different directions, then you're, you're, you're being, you're like being distracted by all of the other things. And so it's not necessarily going for one specific path, but it's going for directionality. And then you'll start to spot the things that resonate with you in particular, or that might have more, 
you know, that, that you might find are, are, are more open and available to you and so on and so forth. Yeah. And so one thing I, I wanted to draw on, particularly with respect to MBA students, as people are thinking about, um, you know, that direction or even just their edge, like one of the things that you talk about in your book is this idea of basic goods, right? In terms of, um, you know, thinking about right now where you are and what you, you know, what you provide that perhaps makes you unique or maybe other people can't. And so could you, um, could you talk about a little bit about basic goods and just kind of that concept? And I guess where I'm going with this is that a lot of times, you know, a lot of the advice that MBA students get um, is, you know, when you're thinking about your career, you know, obviously think about what you want to do, but think about your strengths, right? Or like, right, the, right. you know, and, and that like directionally, I think like that's, it's not an awful, it's not a bad thing to say, but um, I, basic goods really resonated with me. So I'm just wondering if you can maybe unpack that concept a little bit, because I do think, yeah. it helps, I think it helps. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. So, you know, we, we, we do, we, we naturally think about like, what are our strengths and our weaknesses, but that's not actually very easy to do. I mean, when we, when we're asked like, what are your strengths? Like it's hard for anyone to be like, okay, my strengths are these four things. Yes. Like yeah. it's actually really hard to think about strengths and weaknesses. And so what I talk about is part of the E part of how you enrich and provide value is understanding that how you enrich and provide value is going to differ based on the context you're in, based on the mix of people that you're with. And so that's one of the reasons why it's hard to sort of pinpoint these sort of things. So I talk about your basic goods, like going back to the elements. What are those basic things that you're good at? And so an example of this is like, you know, thinking about it in terms of your basic ingredients. So like when my mother, my, my Taiwanese mother, whenever she starts to cook a meal, she um, she starts with a couple of basic ingredients. Like she starts with ginger and garlic and sesame oil and soy sauce. And no matter what she's cooking, regardless of some, it's something she's cooked many, many times before, or she's experimenting and cooking something new. Like those are, that's at the essence of what she's cooking. And so she can throw in different meats or different vegetables or whatever, but that's at the essence. So it's like, what are your superpowers? What are those basic things that make you who you are? They can be traits. They could be things like, I'm really trustworthy and I'm really committed and I'm really empathetic. Or they could be things like, I'm really good technically, or I've always been really good at math. But the thing is you can take two different people. Again, like you take one person who's really trustworthy and committed and empathetic. And you take someone else who's really trustworthy and committed, but maybe not as high on the empathy. And those are two completely different people. And so we often look at someone and we're like, oh, you're really good at people. You should go into sales. But we're not like capturing those basic goods and what really makes you you. And when you capture that, you're able to see not only your strengths, but also your underestimated strengths and your weaknesses and all of these things that really make you you. And that's what allows you to be able to grow. Just like a company, a lot of companies try and grow and they grow and they actually start to fail as they grow. Because I always talk to my students about you, you need to, in order to grow, you need to prune. You need to prune to grow. Like think about a tree, right? A tree only gets taller and bigger if you start to prune away all of the other things. And so you'll get bigger and better and more successful when you continue to use your basic goods to guide you and to give you that directionality 
as you're, as you're sort of growing. And so, you know, I, I know I'm trying to say so much here. I'm trying to fit like, you know, 200 pages into a two minute description here, but, but that's really the, the power of thinking about things in terms of your basic goods. No, I think that, I think that's great. And I, the, I like the concept of the ingredients and I think where, um, where I see it really coming into play and where I can see it really being valuable for students is that inherently, um, you know, many, most students are going to business school because they want some kind of change in their career, whether it's to really transition into a new one or perhaps maybe accelerate their path on an existing one. But um, even though you're changing things, you're going to be bringing some of your past self, some of those basic goods to whatever, whatever you end up doing next. Um, it may be just using them in a different way or applying them in a different way or applying different combinations, you know, of them, right? Certainly someone who worked in HR, like what they did there that made them good there could certainly make them a good management consultant or whatever it is. And I think that a lot of times where I see students get challenged or hung up is that um, they, uh, they, they, there's like a translation layer they have to do in terms of both understanding what those basic goods are, but also in how they could show up in a, a new role that they might be interested in. Absolutely. I mean, I think we, I see a lot of MBA students getting, you know, limiting themselves in that way because mm-hmm. they're like, oh, it's about the function, right? Like I worked yes. in finance. Yeah. I'm now only qualified to work in finance right. and it's hard to switch functions and geographies and roles and, and all these things all at once. But no, you go back to those basic, like when people are writing job descriptions, they don't really know what they're asking mm-hmm. for, right. right? When anyone has to write a job description, the first thing they do is go and see other job descriptions and copy and paste, right? They yes. don't really know yeah. Yeah. what they're looking for. And so I talk lots about like when you're trying to delight and you're trying to guide, looking for those underlying perceptions. Like what are those underlying things that they're, they're looking for? And ultimately there are some jobs where they're looking for someone who's really detail oriented or someone who's really, you know, really creative and, and, and clever or something. And so when you're able to guide people from, I worked in an HR function, here's the types of things that I worked, that projects that I worked in or things that I accomplished that really required me to be clever and creative or required me to be really analytical and detail oriented. There is no reason why you can't sort of make that, that switch. And in fact, I've had to make that switch in my career so many times. And, it's not easy, but there are definitely ways mm-hmm. um, to do that. I mean, I was an engineer by training and I wasn't really right. qualified to do anything else but be an engineer and be something very technical in nature. But then I moved to a sales and marketing role mm-hmm. and I worked in investment banking and I worked in consulting and um, all of those have these translatable skills when you get back to what your basic goods are. Yeah. And I think as part of that, notion of thinking about your basic goods or just thinking about careers in general, one topic that always comes up or something that always comes up is this just notion of self self-awareness, right? And like, you know, being able to know who you are. And I know in the book, um, I think one of the chapters, your, 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 um, your quote was um, self-awareness is like a diamond. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more just about maybe what that, what that means or what that entails? Because I, I, when you said it and when I was reading the chapter, it resonated really strongly with me. So I just would love for you to kind of maybe share a little bit more around that. Yeah. I mean, I, I often talk about this as like, if you think about each individual person, like each of us is a diamond and 
we often, so even before we talk about the diamond piece, like we're often given the advice, like be yourself, right? Yes. Be yourself, self-awareness, yeah. be yourself. And like, and we give people this advice all the time. Like, oh, you're giving a big presentation or you're interviewing for this new job. Just be yourself. They'll love you. Or you're going on a date. Like, oh, just be yourself. They'll love you. Well, be yourself is actually horrible advice yes. and not for the reasons why you think it's not about being fake at all. It's not being, but it's, it's actually be yourself is horrible advice because it doesn't allow you to be genuine. And here's why, why I mean, what I mean by this is there is no one self. There are lots of different versions of ourself. We are very, we are a lot of different selves. Like who you are with your boss is really different from who you are with your best friend, which is really different from who you are with your mom. And so I talk about each of us as a diamond. And if each person is an individual diamond, we have so many different layers and dimensions and diamonds all have flaws and imperfections and different cuts and different facets and different ways that you're going to shine brightly based on the lighting or the angle or the environmental conditions or the room that you're going to be in. And so whenever you're engaging with someone or your counterpart, what you're trying to do is show them the angle of your diamond that's going to shine the brightest. You're still the same person. You're still the same diamond with the same flaws and, and imperfections and facets. But when you show them that side of your diamond that shines the brightest, that's when you're going to have the deepest, richest interpersonal connection where you can show how you provide and enrich, how you enrich and provide value immediately. And so that you can get into more of who you are as a diamond, who they are as a diamond. But if you don't do that, you don't even give yourself the opportunity to have them want to know you and be able to dig into who you are in, in a more complete fashion. And so that's how I sort of talk about you know, this be yourself as well as how you enrich and provide value in this self-awareness. So that self-awareness piece is knowing your entire diamond, like your flaws and your imperfections, but also your cuts and your facets and where you shine brightly and where you don't and under what conditions you don't shine brightly and what conditions you do so that you can hone your ability to engage with people in a much deeper way. Yeah. And the way that you explain it, what I appreciate about it is that it brings it down a layer. So yes, be self-aware, right? Like be yourself. But the way that you explain it in terms of how you show up in this scenario under these circumstances or in this, this, this kind of way, I think what it does is it gives a much more granular and practical way for people to think about specifically um, what are those basic goods or, or in this scenario, how did, uh, how did I show up? Because um, you know, I'm, I think there are some people out there who you tell them be self-aware and like they're reflective enough that they directionally know where to go. But for a lot of people, it's not always, it's not always. It doesn't as, mean as, anything. Sure. It really doesn't yeah. mean that much when they say like, be self-aware. Okay. Well me, I get a little bit about, okay, like here are situations yeah. in which I feel uncomfortable in here, but you don't really get at the, you don't get at the root of it. And so exactly. I also tried in the book to give lots of reflective exercises and questions right. and how to's and practical exercises that allow you to hone your ability to be more self-aware and also to see how others see you and perceive you. So one example you gave in the book, which I thought was really cool, who's someone who did this well, um, was, was of Gary V. And uh, also, it, you, it says from the book that you actually went to high school with him. 
which we did. We, we both went to this really small public school in the middle of nowhere, yeah. in the middle of nowhere, New Jersey. And, in, but he didn't actually pay any attention to me in high school. He was, <laughs> That's okay. he was a couple years older and he was way cooler than I was. Oh, fair <laughs> enough. Um, but you, um, and, and as someone who is, uh, I know who Gary Vee is, but I didn't realize uh, all the nuances of how he built and scaled his wine business. So I thought that was fascinating. But, um, one of the things that really struck me is that he did really double down on his basic goods and he really followed his own unique path. And so could, I would just love to, you know, from what you remember of him, but also from just, you know, being able to research his story and talk to him. Can you share a little bit more about how he was really able to like hone in on those basic goods and really follow that path to what he is now, which, you know, clearly is very, very successful. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I mean, in high school, he was very much his own person. Like I think he already had a really strong sense of, um, of like who he was. And he's just, I think he's just one of the most, um, he's, he's a really like, he's a great person. Like he's a good person and he really has a great head on his shoulders. Um, but like in high school, you know, he sort of did his own thing. Like I, I got great grades. He got terrible grades. Like we hung in very different, different groups, but, um, you know, and I think, his experience is really carried with him. Like I, I talk a lot in the, in the book about how life rhymes and I talk about how, like, what I mean by that is like, we have these experiences when we're young mm -hmm. and it, we have certain feelings from it. Like something doesn't quite sit right or, or, or it makes us feel a certain way. And then later on in life, we, it could be something that's a completely different context with completely different people entirely but it makes us feel that same way like something doesn't sit right or or something and life rhymes and we see these sort of patterns and I think Gary had a lot of those over the course of his life and he um you know he was he was sort of tasked with taking over his dad's um like he had this beer and liquor store in in New Jersey and Gary was like you know but I he 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 really like likened it to this when he was younger and he was trading baseball cards and he was looking at the prices of baseball cards and his life rhymes moment was like, yeah, it's the same thing with wines, right? You collect wines and you check out the prices of wines and wine is sort of this unaccessible thing. It's only for these wealthy people who have ability to have, it. and Gary really made it accessible to everyone where he, um, and you know, there's a bunch of things that I've just learned from him over time. Like he, he talks about how, he has very little expectations of people, right? Like he says, I don't expect a lot from other people. And it's such a great, like, you know, on the one hand, it sounds sort of depressing. Like you don't expect things from anyone. I'm like, no one, like not your family, not your wife. And he's like, nope. Like when you don't have expectations of people, then it makes you really have to understand who they are and their motivations and why they do things. And so in a way, even though it has this very like negative connotation, it ends up being a very positive thing where he doesn't expect things from people. He depends on himself. He depends on himself. And, but he also, he also is always constantly very aware of like others and others perceptions and others cares and wants and, and how that intersects with his. Um, so he doesn't have these sort of expectations around people. I also think he he does a lot of like he thinks very quickly but also very deeply and it these two things don't always go together and and so there's just a lot that he's been able to do with um with wine library as well as banner media and you know now he's got all sorts of different you know he's got pure wow and all these other brands and all these other things that that he's sort of doing and i think he's it's a great story of someone who started out with lots of adversity 
mm-hmm. and lots of constraints and was able to turn that around um, to his advantage. And he also, it just reminds me a lot of, um, of Brian Scudamore, who I also talk about in the book, who founded a company called 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Brian was someone who, um, you know, had not graduated from high school. Um, he talks to me, he, he's, he told me how he was really good at dropping out. He was much better at dropping out of things than, than finishing things. And how he, his whole life was sort of being told that he, he was like a failure and couldn't finish anything. And do you want to be someone who is known for starting a junk company when you never graduated from high school or college or anything? And he talks about how he grows. He, he says this one really powerful thing. He says, grow where you're planted. And this doesn't mean that you take, you, you don't try and rise above the situations. Instead, it means like, he recognized that this was the soil, like this is what he was dealt. And he tried to grow in that soil rather than displacing himself and putting himself in something that was going to be completely different. He grew in that soil and grew really, really strong so that he was then ready to displace himself and put himself in new environmental conditions when he was already very strong and capable and, and all these things. And so I think it's just really powerful how people like Gary and Brian and lots of people that I talk about, um, my friend Beatrice, who her own MBA journey, um, there's just all of these different trajectories um, that I, that I talk about. And Beatrice was one of my classmates in my MBA program who grew up in a really small town in Spain and, um, was, became an accountant or like an, not even an accountant, but someone who was like a bookkeeper. And this was like the most that she could ever have striven for that she was this bookkeeper in the neighboring, the next biggest town from her. And she, um, moved to Germany, not having spoken any German at all. Um, and, uh, she talks about how she like would do, she did all of these interviews and had no idea what they were saying because she didn't speak any German, but she started like recognizing certain phrases and certain, um, you know, and then when she would be in new interviews, she would like just practice saying those phrases. And so like, she would just sort of piece things together in a business context and started making sense. And over time she ended up getting a job as a receptionist at Goldman Sachs. Um, and worked her way up through Goldman Sachs uh, when it became a um, one of their you know top top executives in private wealth management. Um, got her MBA. Decided she didn't want to work at Goldman Sachs anymore, but instead wanted to go into retail and high end fashion. And now she's an executive at Louis Vuitton. I mean, she's like an incredible story about how just through delight and guiding and uh, knowing how she enriches and provide provides value really made this big trajectory for herself. Yeah, no. And I think as I think about those examples that you just gave, and I think they're, they're all really good ones. Um, I, I'm reminded by a quote uh, in your book or passage. It says, um, quote, there are a lot of different ways to win. That's what we forget. We see one path that worked for someone else and we try to replicate that forgetting that there are infinite ways to get from point A to point B and that there are lots of point Bs. And so for context, you know, uh, it, I'm sure many people have pinged Gary V before to be like, Hey, how can I be like you? Or how do I, how do I be just like, like, like you? And so yeah. I'm just curious, just kind of, you know, with context of edge, you know, particularly for MBA students, because I'm sure, and I'm sure you do this too, where you tell, you, you encourage students, go talk to people in your, in 
in the field who are of interest of you or who um, maybe you admire. And so um, can you help maybe dig into a little bit of the nuance there in terms of like, yes, like it's good to go out and, and, and learn and, and meet these people and learn what made them successful. But um, how, do you, how do you help get to from your point A to your point B or from your point A to one version of your point B? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think what you're saying there is like, it's what I talk about in terms of like, a lot of times we're like, okay, look at that person. Like that yes. person founded that company, the yes. IPO. Now, like I want to be, I want to be him or I want to be her. Right. And so then we go and talk to them. We're like, how did you get there? And they yes. said, okay, well, first I got an MBA. Then I did a rotation in sales. Mm -hmm. Then I yep. did this. And so we follow that exact same path. And what I say is 100% of the time, if you follow the exact same path that they did, you will not get to where yes. they got because you are an entirely different person. So if you do exactly what Gary Vaynerchuk did, you will not get to where Gary Vaynerchuk got. And so we need to use these sort of things to inform and triangulate and give us our perspective on who we are and our basic goods and how that meshes with what we're trying to achieve because we need to take our own path. And this happens so often where we sort of do that. We try and follow um, a certain trajectory. And so I talk about how like there are linear trajectories and there are zigzag trajectories and there are distance travel trajectories and there's all sorts of different ways that, that we accomplish this. And that's why it's important to kind of go for directionality while we're getting this, this, this sort of input because that's what's allowing us to find our own find our own way and find our own path while also allowing us the opportunity that maybe we don't want to get to that same point B that we will find our own point B that'll be even more sort of remarkable. Sure. The other thing I tell students is that especially MBA students, because it, again, like these social pressures are really strong and there's mm -hmm. so much that yeah. kind of happens and there's so much comparison Mm -hmm. that happens. Yeah. And so I tell my students, I say to them, I do not give you permission to be envious or jealous of anyone else and what they've accomplished, unless you are willing to trade entire lives with them, mm, which yeah. means yeah. you have to assume their personality. You need to take their family. You need to take their friends. You need to take their mannerisms. You need yeah. to take everything because that's what allowed them to, to get, get to where they yeah. got. You can't be envious of them on one dimension without assuming and taking on all of the dimensions that allowed them to get there. So that's another way that I sort of explain it to them that um, because this happens so often, they're like, oh, well, they got this. And it's like one particular thing. And I'm like, but would you be willing to trade that with them? And they're like, no. And I'm like, well, then, right? Like, so, yeah. um, so that I think helps a lot of my students kind of think about their own path and their own basic goods and who they are. Yeah. I, 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 I love that statement. And I think it's so true. Um, there, you know, people are multifaceted and have multi-dimensions and to some of the points you made from earlier, um, there are lots of things that go into the point of getting from point A to point B. And it's kind of like, you know, if one of those things changes, the whole universe could be different. You know, it's like the butterfly effect in, in that kind of respect, right? Right, right, um, right. So the last um, topic, I mean, there's a lot of topics in your book that were really relevant, but the one that really stuck out to me, and I think, as I think about MBA students, was um, the chapter um, on the recognition of the incongruous. Um, and so I would love to, I would love to have you maybe share a little bit about that and provide some context of it. Because again, I think it really is relevant for MBA students. 
Yeah, I mean, I talk a lot about this as like this sort of shift between shift in mindset. Like, um, you know, maybe an example of this is like, so the incongruous is really thinking about like things that don't fit. Like we're always trying to find solutions to a problem. And so I talk about it as in terms of like, well, there's a lot of solutions out there that are in search of problems, but like in an exercise that I do with students, for example, is this thing called the 10 no's exercise. And what the point of this is, is that over the course of a week, my students have to have get 10 people to say no to them. And they have to write a short paragraph about each of these no's. And at the end of the week, they have to come ready to present one of these no's. And the thing is, we, what we discover is these astonishing things because we're so used to wanting to people to say yes to us. We're so used to wanting people to like us and agree with us and say yes to us that all of the things that we've practiced in our lives are around certain tones and styles and how they perceive us in this way or that way, but all around getting to yes and getting them to like us. But when we flip it around, when the assignment is that you have to get people to say no to you, like you recognize things like, well, hey, this person never responds to me in this way. Like, why are they acting like this? Or why did they say it in that way? Or why did they use that style or that tone? Or why did I pick this person versus that? Or you start to discover astonishing things and you build a different muscle around what's incongruous and what fits and what doesn't. And you, in doing that, you hone your ability to, you hone your intuition around how people see you and those perceptions and those attributions and what works and what doesn't in a very different way. Yeah, no, I think that I, I just something that resonated with me as I think back to my own MBA experience and, um, and also just, it's, it, it's hard. Uh, I, I, I think it would be very, um, being objective right now, if you were to give me that assignment, that would be very hard for me to do. You like, should just do it, to, Al. <laughs> no, I know. I know. I, 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 I know I should. I think uh, where I was listening in prepper for this podcast. I think you and Whitney, maybe Whitney Johnson, talked about this, and uh, and you. I think you may have said the same thing to her. But um, I, I do think uh, uh, as I th- I'm thinking more about it now, um, it is it is a mindset shift, um, and uh, and also just sometimes really really hard to want to to do that, right? To put yourself yeah. out there in that kind of in that kind of way. Um, so I guess as we just kind of like, you know, wrap up here, because we've covered a lot of different ground, um, I'm sure that MBA students come to you all the time for career advice or, you know, how should I think about this or how should I think about that? Um, I'm just curious, you know, uh, what, what are the things that you typically say to them or, or, or how do you kind of coach students, particularly as they try to think about, well, what should I do with my career? Yeah, I mean, I say a lot of things to them, but I mean, a couple of things, like I tell them, like, what's the main thing? Like, what's the main thing that you want? Like, is it that you um, want to be close to family? Is it that you want a challenging thing? Like, keep the main thing, the main thing, right? It's so easy to get caught up in like tangential things that we care about. And then all of a sudden, like we realize that we've got four things that we sort of care about, but we're missing that main thing. So that's one thing. The second thing is I always tell my students, prioritize your sanity over everything else, 
right? Like the minute I see you like stressing out too much, not getting enough sleep, all these sorts of things, like I don't want you reading the case. I don't want you coming in. You have to prioritize your sanity. That doesn't mean you go off partying and then you don't read the case, but you've got to prioritize your sanity over everything else. So I think that's really important. And then I think it's really important. Like the, the reason why I wrote the book is that I felt like people were sort of hitting the same walls over and over and over again and getting frustrated and pulling the same levers and putting the hard work in. And a lot of times we put in the hard work and we burn out, right? Like it's fine to put in three times the work for half the benefits if you don't burn out because, but a lot of times we burn out and we leave, we leave careers, we leave industries. And so I wanted to really get this message to, to students that um, there are ways to give yourself the tailwinds. There are ways to make your hard work work harder for you. And so understanding these, that the world is, is sometimes dominated by perceptions mm -hmm. and stereotypes, but that also gives you power. And when you're empowered by that, um, you can create your own edge. And so I talk lots to my students about these sort of things. Great. Well, that's a great place to end. Laura, thank you so much uh, for joining today. We pre appreciate you sharing uh, your thoughts and insights. Sure. Thanks so much and good luck to you. Hi, everyone. LD here. And thank you so much for listening to the MBA Insider Podcast. If you liked what you heard, make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts and to write a review. It will only take 15 seconds. I'd also love to hear what you've been listening to on the podcast and any suggestions you have for how we can improve. Find me on LinkedIn or head over to mbaschooled.com backslash podcast.